Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to episode 31 of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. On this episode, we are going to be talking all about downward facing dog. We will dive into the anatomy and biomechanics of down dog, and then we'll talk about some alignment rules. For example, should you externally rotate your arms in downward dog? Should you ground your inner hands down? And where should your shoulder blades be? We will also talk about whether down dog is truly a resting pose, as well as strategies for working around pain or discomfort in downward dog, and probably a lot more. Before we dive in, just a little reminder about some of the ways you can support us and our work with this podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating or a review. You can sign up for Jenny's email newsletter to stay in the loop on everything at jennyrawlings.com slash newsletter, and that link will be in the show notes. You can also join our Strength for Yoga remote group training, which is our monthly strength training program for yogis. Use podcast30 as a discount code for 30% off your first month, and that link will also be in the show notes. Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'd like to ask you what down dog is. Now, that is an excellent question, Travis. And downward facing dog is a super common, I think we could call it a quintessential yoga pose or yoga asana that many yogis practice multiple times in every class that they take. And uh, downward facing dog, that's the English word for it, but the Sanskrit word is Adho Mukha Svanasana. And what that breaks down to is that Adho means downward, Mukha means face, and Svana is dog. So, and then we add Asana at the end of that. So Adho Mukha Svanasana. I find a lot of people when they're doing like shorthand abbreviations for yoga poses, they'll abbreviate down dog as AMS. For Asana. Yeah, I usually do DD for down dog. A little easier for, for me. But anyway, so that's just like, that's just a, a basic intro. It's just a super common pose that most of us know. Uh, classically, it's often done like right after the vinyasa sequence where we might do like chaturanga into up dog and then back into downward facing dog. And then we usually hang out in down dog for say five or so breaths, something like that. What it looks like shape-wise is you could you could say like an inverted V. Yeah, like an, an upside down V. I had to think about that for a second. Where your hands and your feet are down and then your hips are piked up and you're basically in an inverted V. So if you think about that, remember the Sanskrit name, Adho Mukha Svanasana, the downward facing part at least is there because down dog is because your head is down below your hips 
you are downward facing. And uh, for example, handstands, which is kind of a related asana the down dog, like they have some similarities. Handstand, the Sanskrit term is Adamuka Vrikshasana, which would be downward facing tree. So Vrikshasana mm-hmm. is, the, is tree. So you can see the similarity both in the shape, but it's also It's all coming names. together. But where does the dog <laughs> part come from? That I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe just this, maybe the shape of that inverted V somehow looks like a dog with its hips in the air or something. I could see that. Oh, sure. You th- yeah, like a dog stretching back. Yeah. You know? uh, I was going to say hands down, but I mean, paws down, front paws down, and then it's hips. Yeah. But I must say, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent, but for handstand being downward facing tree, that mm. confuses me a little bit because an upright tree pose, as most of us know, that's, you know, you're standing on one leg and then your other leg is in tree. Mm-hmm. But handstand's not really the inversion of that because both legs are straight. Typically. Yeah, it should be more like inverted mountain. Yes. Adamuga Tadasana. That has a nice <laughs> ring to it. Or actually, actually, <laughs> downward facing arms up, actually. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. Urdva Hastas. Anyway, but uh, it's, good. it's good to break down. It's good to think things. about. Yeah, exactly. So bringing all that back, Adamuga Shvanasana, downward facing dog. Does that kind of make sense? Put it a little mm-hmm. bit in perspective mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of the basic gist. Do you think there's anything I forgot in just setting out the basics? No, I don't think so. I think, I think we could talk about what the, so you described the shape of the pose and what, if you were going to go joint by joint, Mm -hmm. like anatomically speaking, what, what are your wrists, shoulders, hips, knees, Mm -hmm. ankles doing to get into that shape? Yes. So in downward facing dog, your wrists are in some extension, but they're not in full extension. Like if you think of plank pose mm-hmm. or something, that would be more, more toward full. That's like more of that 90 degree, but you're pressed back from there. So it's not as much wrist extension. Mm-hmm. Um, the shoulders are in a position of flexion, which is basically arms overhead. So that would be shoulder flexion. Uh, the spine is typically just relatively neutral, but you know, there might be some extension and some flexion in some spaces, but we're not intending to like uh, round the spine or, or particularly arch the spine and down dog. It's pretty much generally just neutral, neutral mm-hmm. spine. Hips are in flexion. Mm-hmm. Hips are in flexion. Uh, the knees are straight and the ankles are in dorsiflexion dorsiflexion so that's like where dorsiflexion is like where you flex your foot versus plantar flexion is where you point your foot Mm -hmm. so toes towards shins exactly or shins towards toes since yeah and down the feet are on the flat flat on the ground that's right that's right so those would be kind of like the major joint actions don't you think there yeah i got i think the knees you said knees are straight knees are mostly straight i mean depending on the person right everything else i think is is yes. inarguable, uh, <laughs> but whether the knees are perfectly straight is something that we we'll probably touch on. You're, yes, you're right. I think we will probably talk about that, but that's right. They do not need to be fully straight. They can be bent in, in mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. But classically, the picture of down dog that you see has straight knees. Yes. Um. So, yeah. So then if that's kind of just like the joint uh, positions for down dog, what would you say? Now, of course, maybe just to be a little clear. In this conversation today, we are mainly speaking about down dog as far as like biomechanics and movement and kind of like a movement science take on the pose. Because I'm about to ask you, like, why might we practice down dog or what is it offering mm-hmm. for our body? 
And when I'm asking you that, I mean that in the context of like biomechanically. Ah, as opposed to like traditionally. Yeah, it just it, comes here in the sequence. So we just gotcha. do it here. It's the pose in the book. Gotcha. But why, like, why might one choose to practice down dog from a physical standpoint? Mm, yeah, a movement standpoint. Yeah. And yeah. What what things can a person run into along the way? Yeah, and like how I how might we change things? Like just mm-hmm. having an understanding of what's happening, like mechanically in down dog, I think can be really informative for for our why and like how and when, and also um, how we teach it, you know, what yeah. we say about well, it. it. I think the, the the big picture is that it doesn't always have to look one particular way. <laughs> That's right. Or even be practiced with one particular goal in mind. Mm, Cause there's yes. a lot going on, right? There's a lot going on in the pose. As you just described. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So if we're thinking like biomechanically, um, what, I don't, maybe just kind of like some big picture, um, explanations, like what's going on in down dog? Mm-hmm. Why, what's happening to our body? Why, why might we want to practice it? Yeah. Well, I think the first two, maybe the one starter reason that isn't, I don't think a very good reason is because people think of it as a resting posture. Oh yeah. So they're like, oh, we're going to go into down dog. And like you said, we're going to rest five breaths because it's considered a resting posture. So mm-hmm. there's that. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about that later. But from a biomechanical standpoint or right. an exertion standpoint, that's that's a reason that's often given. But I don't think that's a good reason because at least personally, I feel a lot of work in my body. <laughs> you don't and feel I, like and it's I've a resting that, pose. Yeah, I've heard that from other people as well. So that's a reason. I don't think that's a good reason we can talk about that. But right. it ties into these other things. So I think the better explanation that's more accurate is people tend to visit it for its stretching effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you feel a good stretch through your hamstrings, especially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as well as potentially or probably your calves. Right. Um, because as you mentioned, we're in hip flexion, our knee is relatively straight. So that's putting tension on the hamstrings or, or a stretch yeah. on the hamstrings. And then the, because the ankles are in dorsiflexion, now we're putting a stretch on the calves. Mm-hmm. So totally. the, the flexibility stretching component would be, I think the first one people might think of. And then the second one would be that we're loading the upper body. So That's right. like you mentioned with the, the extension to um, handstand with the similarity oh, right. of names, Right. The the loading of the upper body is not that different. Like if you just looked from the wrist to the hip, mm-hmm. you have a relatively straight line. And if you inverted that a little bit more, then yeah. you would turn that into handstand. So down dog is a good, if you're working towards handstand, down dog might be yes, a precursor to handstand sure. from the upper body loading standpoint. So when you're standing on two feet, all of your weight is going into your feet. <laughs> When you bring the hands down to the floor, now you've distributed the load between your upper and lower body and your whatever it is. And maybe, you know, do you know, have you looked at down dog on the bathroom scale with your hands? 
on top. So I know you did for push-ups. I did for push-up and for yeah. like some standing posts. I'm not sure that I did for down dog. Yeah. Well, anyway, <laughs> there's some distribution and we we will right. talk about what that distribution, not the percentages necessarily, but how you can shift from mm-hmm. loading the lower body more to lower, right. loading the upper body more. But as soon as you put your hands on the floor, there's some load that's going through the upper body from the hands, through the wrists, through the elbows and up into the shoulders, which are doing the most work to hold you in that pose. So to recap, (laughs) uh, people, people will say it's because it's a resting pose. So they're going to hang out there. But actually I think the true benefits or the, the more realistic benefits are, are that you're getting flexibility and you're getting some load through, especially the upper body, especially the upper body. And you mentioned, um, the stretch for like the backs of the legs and loading for the upper body. Uh, but what, do you think we could also think of there being some flexibility for the shoulders oh, yeah. as well? Right. Like they're so, loaded, like they're working, but they're also at an end range. Yeah. Shoulders and perhaps thoracic yeah, spine thoracic extension. Spine, the upper mid If you think about the frequent assists that teachers will do coming around the room, right? You're mm-hmm. in down dog and they'll press back right in the, the middle of your back to try to accentuate that extension. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, for me a little more often, what I'll see is like reaching the hips back, like pressing hips back, which I feel pulls the spot, might pull the spine into some more extension. Yeah. So I guess it could, that could take place at either, but where, where the assist is coming, whether it's more Mm -hmm. upper back or more at the hips, the effect is the same Mm -hmm. by giving you some more extension through the spine, then that tends to help with the overhead motion of the shoulder at the glenohumeral joint. Yeah, exactly. Because there's that like combination of multiple joints moving when you take your arms overhead. So yeah. we think shoulders, but like we can, we can refer our listeners to our ABCs of the shoulder <laughs> podcast. Precisely where we totally broke down the shoulder complex, the shoulder joint complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So actually I have a quick question for you, Travis about down dog and like the biomechanics involved. Would you say, or do you think the down dog is effective for core strengthening? And let's say when we're talking core, I'm meaning like the anterior core, like the abdominals. Do you think, so? I, he, I, you know, people say this, I find. My um, first answer is? is no. <laughs> My second answer is maybe, but mm-hmm. no, I don't see it. I Like the, so much of the work is coming from pressing through the shoulders yes. and trying to relax through the posterior chain you're you're okay so if you're if core if your core muscles rectus abdominis hip flexors are stimulated through active hip flexion then right the question is well is there active hip flexion occurring here and i don't think so i don't see that personally no i think you're creating the hip flexion just through the pushing of the shoulders that's right so like yeah, I guess you could try to get into down dog and fire, like isometrically contract those muscles, but it's not really that that's, it's more the shoulders that are creating that. Okay. Well, if I, if I release the active shoulder flexion, then I come into plank. Right, right, right. right. And actually I was going to use the example of plank to compare it to down dog. As far as Mm -hmm. this question about the core. Because I think it's maybe a little more obvious for us to see that plank pose, you know, where you're shifted forward and the shoulders are over the wrist. 
that actually is a core targeter for lead. And again, mm-hmm. we're saying anterior core, because if your abdominals were not working in plank, your whole belly and your hips would sag to the floor. It's an up dog, essentially. Yeah, yeah. At, at the extreme. So instead of that, you're working those very muscles in order to lift your hips up and hold them like buoyant above the floor. So plank plus, you can just see that relationship to gravity wants to pull like the spine down and you you counteract that to lift up. That's why plank is a core targeter. But if you compare that in your mind to down dog where the hips are back, you're now at this like this angle, your whole torso is at this angle. So that line of gravity isn't the same in down dog. I and know. What? Sorry. So you, go ahead. Uh, what were you going to say? Um, what would make it a core targeter is if your feet were on a yoga blanket. <laughs> that's true. Not, if, you yeah. wanted to, if you wanted to turn down dog into a core targeter. And that's an exercise You're that totally we right. sometimes do in our programs, our strength for yoga programs, a blanket slide. Into, that's right. What do we, I forget what we call it. Plank to forward fold. Mm-hmm. So we move through of, a down dog. Yeah. You could, yeah. you could just go between plank and down dog if you wanted. Um, as kind of a shorter range of motion there. Yeah. But what the reason that it's not uh, really engaging the core is because there's friction on the floor that's preventing your feet from sliding back. So if right. there were no friction there, then your core would be have to isometrically yeah. engage to prevent you from sliding from your down dog into your plank. But because we do yoga on frictive mats uh, Mm -hmm. that are grippy there's there's friction on the floor preventing your feet from sliding back so your abs don't have to and hip flexors don't have to do that work that's right that's a really good thing to point out so therefore downward facing dog it's not really a very potent stimulus for core strengthening for like abdominal strengthening it's more about the upper body in terms of like loading the shoulders pushing the floor away and then like that stretch through through the hamstrings would you kind of like shoulders. sum up yeah and the shoulders would you kind of mm-hmm. sum up like down dog and the the general biomechanics that way yes so why don't we turn now that we've kind of established some anatomy and biomechanics primers for what's going on in down dog why don't we turn our attention to uh just some like really common alignment rules that we find in the yoga world for downward facing dog and, um, you know, take, take a look at them, like maybe, um, examine them and see what, you know, what movement science might, might suggest about some of these alignment cues. And we, I actually did put out a call to our audience for questions about downward facing dog before we recorded this podcast. And we got a lot of questions about these, all these points that we're going to be talking about. But this first one that we're going to address is the one that we got the most questions about. It's one that I personally have tended to, I've seen this, it's just a very common cue that I was taught and that I see taught in yoga classes everywhere for down dog. But this is the very common uh, alignment rule we hear for down dog that we should externally rotate the arms or the shoulders when we're in this pose. Like um, you press back into downward facing dog and then once you get there, you're often cued to uh, externally rotate, or it may not be the, that exact anatomical language, like in the context of a yoga mm-hmm. class, but it might be some other cues that achieve the same thing, such as wrap the outer upper arms back or wrap your triceps back. These are just common cues I tend to hear that basically they're creating the same action or turn the eyes of your elbows to face forward. 
So turn the elbow creases forward. Basically, that's another cue that's meant to encourage that external rotation. Mm -hmm. To me, the idea is like you enter downward facing dog, but once you get there, it's like not enough or it's not good enough to just stay there the way you landed. But instead, you're supposed to do something to like layer on this conscious change which is to consciously externally rotate the shoulders while you're there. Mm -hmm. Like it's not correct to just be there without that. Like you have to layer that on. That's the idea. It's not doing it right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Now in my experience with this cue, I find that it's often like if you were to ask a yoga teacher, you know, why, why are you offering that cue? Mm -hmm. Um, I find that it's often the case that, Teachers just teach it because it's just what they learned in their teacher training. Yeah. If you have a yoga teacher training handbook and it's got like all the asanas and then quote the cues and it's like mm. a bullet point. These are the things you say in these poses. This is this is how a lot is how they're often laid out. Common like if you take a yoga teacher training, they'll give you a manual with the poses and then there's gonna be cues and they'll tell you the cues, but they won't necessarily tell you why. Yes, that's definitely very common. And I, I'm not, I wouldn't say that in a blamey way. It's just like in a 200 hour yoga teacher training yeah, where you have so much, con- you're supposed to pack in so many subjects. Like anatomy mm. is a very small slice, you know? Yep. I get that. So, and you well, have I so many poses to go over. I don't completely get it, but I know, <laughs> I know that that's a thing. I get I, I, I conceptually that in a 200 hour, there's a lot to cover and anatomy seems to be something that gets a little shortchanged, hence uh, the relevance of our podcast. Yes, we're kind of trying to like fill in a lot of the gaps that are often left behind, understandably yeah. so, and, in a 200-hour teacher training. And you can imagine that these manuals are already pretty long with all the poses yes. and all the cues. So if you added a third column to these tables and said, here's the reason why for yeah. the cue, you're suddenly... You know, one cue, externally rotate the shoulders, wrap the triceps back, uh, uh, wrap the elbow creases forward. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you need another paragraph to explain what's going on anatomically and your manual becomes a hundred pages longer. Not to mention all the other stuff in a yoga teacher training that's also taught, like the yoga philosophy, the yoga history, sequencing, like so much, like we're just talking about the poses, so... I, t- I think it's completely understandable why one might come out of a yoga teacher training and not really know the the biomechanical why behind why they might teach to externally rotate the shoulders. They just mm-hmm. teach it because they were taught that like, this is what you teach. Got it. You know what I mean? So Yeah. So that's like level one. And then level two, there might be teachers who are teaching it because they because they have been explained to like the reason why Mm -hmm. which uh in my experience the reason why uh beyond just like we do it this way because we do it this way has to do with safety like Mm -hmm. shoulder safety or protecting the shoulders from injury that famous word we do this to protect (laughs) exactly which Which some people some people mention so often yeah they did. You mean in the questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right, right. So like, what's, what's the connection between needing to externally rotate the shoulders and potential shoulder safety or protecting the shoulders? Um, so in many teacher trainings, you might just get the explanation, like we do this for safety or we mm-hmm. do it to prevent injury, end of story, you know, and no further explanation. Mm-hmm. But in some teacher trainings, or maybe like a 500 hour setting, or maybe a teacher training that's that pri- that like advertises itself as being more anatomy focused, you know, some mm-hmm. trainings say that. 
then you might get more of the actual um, anatomical or like patho anatomical explanation. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by patho anatomical? Patho from the word pathological, like um, going to be bad for you, basically. Mm -hmm. Would Mm -hmm. you agree that that's what patho is? So, Mm -hmm. and then you layer that onto anatomy. Yeah, I love that word. You do? (laughs) The word patho anatomical. Yeah, I just think it's a cool word. Just to say, like to roll off the tongue. But uh, patho too. anything actually, like pathophysiology, yeah, uh, is a, I like a that too. That is sometimes offered, right? Not right. By, not by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not by me either. Um, but yes, so there are some ideas around the shoulders in down dog, which, as we mentioned, downward facing dog has the shoulders in flexion, so it's an overhead shoulder position pose. Now, if we kind of step away from yoga and maybe think more in, um, I don't know, like physical therapy or like the medical side of things, Mm -hmm. there is definitely, there's this line of thought that uh, when the arms are overhead, there can be issues with that position that can, in some people, if they have um, pathoanatomical or patho kinesio ways of moving i don't know if that's the right word but in some people who are moving in faulty ways they can be um doing something in their shoulders that might uh, cause this like pinching or compressing or the word that the buzzword we all hear is impinging impinging Mm -hmm. of some tissues in the shoulder specifically one of your rotator cuff tendons the supraspinatus and or um a bursa this like fluid filled sac that lives in the shoulder joint it's usually one of those two structures uh, is said. Sorry, what were you going to say? Sounds ominous. Yeah, the subacromial bursa. Yeah, issues in your tissues. Exactly. Those tissues getting impinged between bones in the shoulder. And mm-hmm. specifically, just to break it down a little more, but again, like you said, we can refer people to the ABCs of the Shoulders podcast where we talk in depth about the shoulder complex. But mm-hmm. There's a structure on the scapula or the shoulder blade called the acromion or the acromion process. And that kind of projects forward and creates this roof over the head of the humerus or the upper arm bone. And there's this space between them that's got this fancy term, the subacromial space, Mm -hmm. like sub being underneath. So the space underneath the acromion. And the, um, this idea coming out of like the rehab world, for lack of a better term, is that that subacromial space is, um, it's important to maintain. And if it gets too narrow, that's what can cause the pinching of the tissues that live there. Mm-hmm. Do you think I'm describing? And, and that yep. specifically happens when the arms lift overhead. Specifically. Yeah. Uh, combination, especially it can, it can occur. There's thought to occur with flexion also exacerbated by internal rotation dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and protected or like the space is kept wider with external rotation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so when the arms go up when you actively externally rotate the idea is that that creates more subacromial space and uh is less likely to impinge those tissues mm-hmm. and that pain is usually felt on the front of the shoulder um as like a what how how would you describe it stabbing or i think it's like a kind of a sharp i don't know because i haven't personally experienced but i would imagine like a yeah like a sharp pain in the front of the shoulder would you say i think that's true correct so this is very common we know shoulder pain is super common in people and it's also very common to experience shoulder pain when the arms lift that's a very common like movement that's associated with 
this painful experience. Of course, not in everyone, but it's a common, um, you know, painful mm -hmm. pattern that we see uh, arising. And, and the way that physical therapists will often assess for this subacromial sub impingement is by putting a person in that provocative position of shoulder flexion coupled with internal rotation, which is called the NEARS test. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned NEAR because I did a little research on like the history of, of impingement or like ideas around impingement and NEAR, maybe you know this, but NEAR was a surgeon back mm -hmm. in the seventies who, who proposed the whole theory of shoulder impingement. He was a surgeon and he just felt through his own observations of looking at shoulders that he was operating on. He just decided that he was identifying this pattern and he kind of declared or proposed that there was this mechanism for this shoulder pain that was showing up in people. And that's, that is basically this pinching of those tissues and that it's more likely to happen in people who have the acromion process shaped in certain shapes, like there's mm, certain yeah, there's bony variations. Three, maybe? Three. Different. Mm -hmm. I yeah, there, there are names. Variations. Exact, yeah, names for sure. Yeah, I think it's like the hooked Maybe variation is more. Okay, yeah, that sounds right. I was going to yeah. say one, two, and three, but I think it's one, better. two, and three. But I think three is the hooked. I think. Okay, um, yeah. that sounds good. So basically, Mir, the surgeon, proposed this back in 1972, but it was like I said, it was based on his observations, and it wasn't actually looked at like in research or tested you know, more empirically, it was just like, he was like, I'm seeing this pattern. This is my theory, but it ended up catching on and kind of becoming the working model of this is, this is basically what gets blamed for tons uh, or the majority of instances where people have overhead arm shoulder pain. Mm. Like you said, they'll do tests like to, you know, provocation tests to like test for it, but it's super common. Um, subacromial impingement syndrome or SIS is the the technical like term for it? It's been kicking around for a long time, and it really all dates back to to this per this one man and this theory that he came up with. Like one person, one theory that wasn't really tested, but just kind of sounded right. Like, oh yeah, bones can come together and tissues can get pinched. That seems like it would be painful. So mm -hmm. yeah, that makes like it just um it wasn't really examined beyond that. It just kind of was maybe an assumption, and and what's grown out of that now is you know we have super widespread surgeries that happen mm. to the shoulder where, where they literally go in and shave down the, the bony acromion process to make more subacromial space. And do those surgeries seem to work? Well, I'm glad you asked that. We, uh, we actually have lots of research, especially super recent, like today, that shows that that's called an acromioplasty. That's mm -hmm. what that surgery is called. That that actually, um, per, as far as people getting out of pain, and acromioplasty performs no better than a placebo. So a placebo surgery, it's like they'll give you know, two groups of people. One people get the actual acromioplasty and others, they get a procedure, but they don't actually shave down the bone. It's right. Like I, I think they, the person doesn't know whether they're, they've had the surgery or not. They've been right. randomly allocated to one of the groups, but they don't know. And they'll, they'll still like do the incision. Right. And they'll put the person under, do the incision. And so it'll look, and then they'll stitch like them back Like they had up. a procedure. They won't, yeah. yeah, they won't actually shave down the acromion, but it'll, the person will see, oh. They were like, They went in. And, yeah, they yeah. closed it up. Something must have happened. And there's uh, no difference between yeah. the actual surgery and the sham. That's also called like a sham surgery. Which People, is just wild. It's, isn't that crazy? 
And we have lots of data of that also happening in other areas of the body, like at the knee and the meniscus. Mm -hmm. I think you just, didn't you just report on, um, review a study on that for Physio Network? It was, it was similar to that. It was, it was comparing people who did and didn't get the, the surgery or who opted for it later. Oh, okay. Okay. So there was no sham. Right, right, right. But a similar instance of a surgery that may not need to be done. Right. So in addition to, I mean, it's pretty damning to just know that actual shoulder surgery doesn't work any better than sham shoulder surgery, but also the acromioplasty doesn't work better than just exercise and physical therapy Yeah, where there's no surgical intervention. I think the, the one it, it, I totally agree that it's damning. The one thing is like they both kind of work, right? <laughs> so That's it's so not true, to Travis. say, yeah, yeah, it's not to say that people that don't get better work. after the subacrom uh, of after the acromioplasty. It's just like, well, you you could have not done it and thought you did it. Exactly. <laughs> so, which which does lend itself to, hey, we shouldn't, we probably shouldn't be doing this. Because it's, um, but it's invasive, not to say that, yeah, and it's yeah. There's so many risks. It's expensive. Risks, it's just, yeah. It's it, because it's no better than the no, uh, the placebo. That goes to show that it's not necessary. But it does. It's not to say that it doesn't work. Yeah, it doesn't, you're totally it doesn't work right, be, Travis. It doesn't work because of the pathoanatomical explanation. Because people who think they've gotten it, it all they also seem to get better at a similar clip rate. I, you know, I don't know what the I don't know that those studies that have compared the surgery to no surgery, mm-hmm. like what percentage of those people are, are getting better. However, that's defined. I had a um, review that I had just looked at in preparation for this that showed it was like about the same and both like short-term and long-term. And do, do you remember the percentage of people who seem to report improved function and decreased pain? Oh, like out of, out of the hole. I don't, sorry, I don't remember that. But we we will, we can link the study in the show notes. Perfect. So people can check that out. But anyway, the point being, it's just like, uh, and like you said, um, yeah, the surgery might work for a good amount of people, but the reason that it works doesn't seem like it's because more subacromial space was created and because the mm-hmm. bone was actually changed. It might be for other reasons. It might be because the person who got the, sh- the shoulder surgery just got to rest the shoulder for several weeks as it healed. It might be because they believed, you know, they're just like, like we talked about in our, which yoga educator should I trust episode and like the post hoc fallacy and all of this, mm-hmm. like trying to identify mechanisms. It gets, it gets complicated. So all of that, all of that is just to say that when it comes to something like shoulder pain, when you lift your arm overhead, you don't actually need to physically change the subacromial space and make it larger in order to get out of pain. So was what was causing the pain in the first place, was it because of the subacromial space? Was it even because those tissues were being impinged? Like we know that it's just natural for tissues to be compressed and squeezed yeah, as the body moves I think around. That's a really important point. And it happens like all the time. Impingement happens yes. to everybody. For some people, it's painful. For some people, it's not. That's but right. the subcranial space is small and there's a lot of tissues going through it. And yeah. it, it compresses as you raise your arm up. And for some people, that is bothersome. And for some people, it's not. Exactly. So it's not inherently like a bad thing. It's just kind of part of natural movement. Mm-hmm. It was just an assumption that seemed to be laid on that like, that seems like that could cause pain. And that's why that person has pain. But we don't. Pain is so multifactorial, right, Travis? Mm-hmm. Like there are... Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's so many things that could go into the experience of pain when your arm is overhead. Yeah. So when you give somebody a diagnosis, a label, yes. like subacromial impingement syndrome, what can happen? Um, that is and specifically that diagnosis in general, uh, specifically like with the word impingement. But what I think can happen there is it could it could serve as a nocebo, which can, um, you know, can lead to more pain potentially being created because people just believe they have this belief that may not even be true about what's going on in their shoulder. But it also can make people afraid of moving. It can make mm-hmm. them afraid to lift the arm overhead. And that can just snowball into creating more pain because we know motion is lotion in general. Mm-hmm. Like movement in general is healthy for our joints if you stop moving. That yep. can actually create fear stopping moving, creating fear of movement. Yes. Increase the pain. And that term impingement in general is just kind of a scary sounding term. You know, oh. it just sounds like impinge, like I'm really scared right now. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why the updated, like more evidence-based take on this whole topic has been to retire that term completely and to not use SIS, subacromial impingement syndrome, like we don't like to not use that term anymore. And it seems to be um, what current thinking is, is to replace that term with a term called rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Mm-hmm. That seems to be one, one term that people are liking. And then there's also subacromial pain syndrome. I think that's what it's called yeah. is the other one. Some people don't like the subacromial pain syndrome because it's still pointing out one specific location, mm. which makes it so specific, which it may not be that specific. And also yeah. if people Google that diagnosis, if they're like, I was diagnosed with this, I Google subacromial, no matter what, you're going to get a bunch of Google listings that are all about the scary impingement, you know? Yeah. I think, I think both of them are better. It's funny because yeah. they're both less specific and that, that seems to mm-hmm. be the way we're moving the away from like these very specific, this is exactly what's wrong to just more generic general, like, Oh, your shoulder hurts. <laughs> and we have a name for that and it's called rotator cuff related, um, shoulder pain, I think. Shoulder or pain, yeah. 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 Right. Which basically just like my shoulder hurts in the area of my shoulder. Um, so I think, I think that those are, well, oh, I, I was going to say was these were mentioning this as the newest state of the art, uh, medical approach to talking about this. I wouldn't say that this is the new normal of, yes, I, like you'll still hear plenty of people talking about subacromial impingement syndrome who haven't come around or, or even been exposed to these newer ideas, which are are fairly new, right? Like I would say within the last few years, at I least totally the agree. last few years that they're coming across my radar. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree. It seems to be the newest line of thinking and what's coming out from newest research. But as we know, it takes a long time for a a, significant amount of time for insights from research to trickle down to Mm -hmm. levels of clinicians, let alone just lay people. Especially something that's been around for 50 years. 
since 1972. And it was like one man had one idea. You know, I think we talked in our episode on how to think more scientifically. We suggested that like when one person just comes up with this one whole idea or system or, you know, know, like in one day I just came up with this. It's rare that that actually ends up being like supported by research. So it's just interesting, like what we have in our hands now. So all of that, all of that about impingement is to kind of bring this back to the yoga alignment rule. It makes a lot of sense to me that, of course, in the yoga world, especially the yoga world, because we know that the yoga world isn't necessarily super up to date on all this evolving research about the body movement and pain. So, of course, we're going to have some older ideas about the way things work and about the way pain works. I mean, that's our whole podcast tends to be about that quite frequently. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense. We, we learn in yoga teacher trainings that it is important in downward facing dog to consciously externally rotate the shoulders in order to prevent impingement. That's like what you might learn yes. in a yoga teacher training. I think you and I, Travis, are here to suggest that actually that's probably not necessary. Like our sh- we're probably not in danger with the arms overhead in downward facing dog. Our nervous system like knows how to coordinate our bodies, our muscles, our joints. And we can probably trust that uh, and just not layer on. Like, I would you would you suggest that teaching people into downward facing dog and then cueing now externally rotate the shoulders. Would you suggest that maybe like a micromanaging cue that's just not necessary? Just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. As you can probably tell from this conversation, Travis and I value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement which means incorporating insights from scientific research into our practice and teachings. We channel our understanding of movement science into our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Also remember that other ways you can support us are by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter, and the link is in the show notes, and by subscribing to this podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. And now back to our episode. Would you suggest that maybe like a micromanaging cue? That's just yeah. not necessary. But, yeah, I think from the standpoint of preventing injury or pain, and the, in particular, this syndrome that we're not even calling a syndrome anymore yeah that that's probably not necessary you might choose to do that from a purely muscular engagement standpoint just to feel what it feels like Uh, that's right but that's a very different rationale and experience and thought process and narrative a hundred percent you might go into external rotation and then you might go into internal rotation and feel what it feels like or nothing exactly. at all or nothing at all. Right. It's like, um, just as a, as a baseline cue, when mm. people, when the general right. group of people this are doesn't down have to dog. be a default no. thing that you're laying on to, 
volitionally do something on top of what your body's naturally doing. That's right. But you certainly, like you said, you could add that in like occasionally with one specific intention for the moment. Like let's, let's externally rotate now. Now let's internally rotate, go back and forth. You mm -hmm. could do the same thing at the hip joints, you know, externally, internally rotate and down dog as an exploration or a mobility drill. Like there might be different reasons why you might mm -hmm. do this, but the, where those are like specific examples that are not right. just like your default, um, yeah. you know, your default way that you would teach the pose. And I would say the one the one situation where you might, the one counter example would be if you are having pain in your shoulders yes. in that position and you go into, you do try externally rotating and it feels better, then, then that's be okay. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean necessarily that you always have to do it that way. Maybe mm -hmm. could be a temporary modification. That's right. As your shoulder is calming down. So it could be a helpful cue for an individual in an instance like that, where maybe they have pain otherwise. So one suggestion, there are many suggestions that you could mm -hmm. throw at yeah. someone to try to work around pain. Yeah. That's one of gonna, many. Yeah, we're going to talk about some of this. That's right. But that's certainly one valid thing that may help an individual alleviate pain. So for mm -hmm. sure they should. It's definitely, it's not that it's like a bad cue, like no cue is inherently bad or good. I think what we try to like talk about in our work together is this more just like these ideas about this one, you know, set of cues or alignments that must be done in order to protect the body, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's more about that. It's like, what's your reason behind the cue? If you're teaching mm -hmm. externally rotate because you think everyone needs to do, to do that, either because you were just taught that's just how we do it or because you were taught this is safer. Like neither of those reasons are reasons that we need to teach that cue in down mm -hmm. dog. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was a, a thorough treatment and it ties into to our next, next one. Yeah, that we were talking about. So what happens, Jenny, mm -hmm. or what if you externally rotate the shoulders, what can that then create at the hand? That's a great question, Travis. If you, you mean if you're in down dog, if you externally rotate the shoulders and I know this can be a little tricky if you don't quite no no anatomy in the way that the body moves but like if you picture you're in down dog when you externally rotate that means you would roll the outer arms back or wrap the triceps back so the whole arm would spin in this way in which the weight all the way down in your hands because it's all connected right the whole kinetic chain the weight in your hands would roll toward the outer hands you would mm -hmm. you would um shift more weight into the outer hands and you'd have less weight in your inner hands mm -hmm. would you agree like that's kind of the mm -hmm. tendency there if you externally mm -hmm. rotate yeah, if everything below that is moving along with the that, if you externally rotate at the shoulder, then it's going to, if you're looking down at your right arm, mm -hmm. the, the external rotation would be clockwise and that would go down from the shoulder to the elbow to the wrist to the hand. Yeah. And your hand would be, it's not going to necessarily move, could move. It could uh, move, yeah. If the floor were slippery, but if you have a grippy mat, it's just going to create like a corkscrewing effect. Right. That's right. And more weight would shift into the outer hand. Mm -hmm. And then we can kind of add on to that with just like maybe external rotation cue aside, you know, because maybe a teacher hasn't taught that or someone's not doing that. That can there, just happen. It can just happen where people are in down dog and the weight rolls to the outer hands and the inner hand. Sometimes the inner hands actually lift mm -hmm. and specifically like the base knuckle of the first finger or the base knuckle of the index finger kind of lifts away. This is a very common in yoga. We tend to be taught that this is this alignment no no or it's bad mm -hmm. alignment when you 
look at someone in Dow Dog and you see that lift of the inner hand. So what do they do what do they tell you? What are they all what's the the first cue on the teacher training manual is externally rotate the arms. The second cue is <laughs> That's right, Travis. Is to um press the base knuckle of your index finger down or just maybe more generally ground your inner hands. You know, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Uh, or or ground down through all five base knuckles evenly. That's another mm-hmm. one I hear, like ground down through all five. But the point is like to spread the weight to the inner yeah, hand sure where you probably... Like, cupping or tenting yeah. of the inside. Of the palm. Palm, yes, is not occurring. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like so that it's, yeah, like the palm is relatively flat and all those knuckles are grounded. Some mm-hmm. sort of cueing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think about <laughs> so, that? What do I, I think it's, I certainly experienced it's very common to see people when they're bearing weight on the arms in down dog that they do have that lift. Mm-hmm. I used to think it was a problem and I definitely used to cue to ground that down for sure. Mm-hmm. But since I've learned a lot more about the body and movement and pain, I, uh, I've changed the way that I think about that. I think instead that's just kind of like the natural way that your body is just coordinating itself in that position. I don't see it as inherently injurious to like have a little more weight on the app. Like I think we can yeah, handle. I've seen lots. I've seen like yoga anatomy articles written about this where they say it's injurious. What do they say the is going to happen? I, that's a good question. It was, I don't remember the exact thing. I think just like injury to the wrist or um, things, things like that. It's just bad. Mm. It's just bad for you. Just bad. Right. Let alone the fact that um, if you think like rolling all the way to the outer wrist and then maybe you do something like forearm plank or headstand where you've like interlaced your fingers. I don't know if people can picture that as I'm describing mm-hmm. it, but you've got you've got your entire side outside of your hand down on the floor, the outer wrist. You mean to say that that can bear load? <laughs> that's, that's the question. Right. So just like we don't we don't tend to think about it in like headstand or, or um, like so forearm plank. You know, we don't always do forearm plank with hands interlaced, but sometimes we yeah. do. We don't think about it there, but for some reason in down dog, a little weight in the outer hands is supposed to be injurious. It is, wow. Travis. So you and I made a great video about this that I think we'll link in the show notes. Sure. We, we kind of broke this down. Uh, I really like this video. But what we showed or suggested in the video is like, yeah, this is very common in down dog that you have that inner hand lift. But check out what happens when most people... Once they shift from down dog into a position where actually they're bearing more weight on their arms and hands, like say plank pose, let alone arm balances, crow pose, handstand, what tends to happen is naturally that lift of the inner hand naturally comes down once the upper limb is bearing more weight. Mm-hmm. It, it'll just like press it down. It's it's not like something that even comes up in those poses. It tend, tends to, in my experience. So it's like you don't have that much, you know, very, that much weight in your upper body and down dog. So maybe it's just, that's just how it's naturally organizing itself. Mm-hmm. But if you shift forward in a plank and you look at your hands, you probably notice that, that um, there is more of that grounding of the inner hand. It just kind of pushes itself down as there's more weight. Do, do you agree? I agree with that. Yeah. So basically what we're saying is the cue the, is often to externally rotate the shoulder. And then because now you've created this lifting of the uh, base knuckle of the index finger. Now you have to counteract that. So you're mm-hmm. corkscrewing in one direction at the upper arm, the opposite direction at the forearm That's and wrist right. and hand. And it's like, what is the point of all of this? Like, are we, why are we doing, why are we going into the weeds on this thing? That doesn't even matter. 
exactly. It's like this overly complex puzzle that we're asking yeah. yoga students to figure out, like how they click in with that right alignment. Yeah. Especially from the, the injury prevention standpoint. Yes, if you want to play with that for the experience and the sensation and the muscular engagement, yeah. that's fine. But it does, it, I don't think it has to be a mandatory. These are the cues that I spit out every time just because I don't know why or because I think that I'm protecting the body that doesn't need protecting in this case. That's right. Like they don't need to be these default alignment cues that are just universal, what we always do in these poses, but they can be fine to explore and experiment from time to time. Mm -hmm. I like how you said that. So that is a great look at both uh, this external rotation cue and down dog and the ground, the inner hand cue and down dog. So let's move on to some of the other things we wanted to look at as far as alignment in down dog goes. And uh, the next one on our list is to take a look at down dog length or that distance between where your hands are and where your feet are. I know this one tends, people wonder about this a lot, like what's the right length mm -hmm. for a downward facing dog? I've wondered about this. And then I watched your YouTube video and <laughs> answered all my questions. Did you answer? That's so great. Should we link that YouTube video also in the show notes? Definitely. That's good. I think I, I'm pretty that's sure I 10. got it. Oh, that's right in all my YouTube videos. I know that video is just me, but I'm pretty sure I got your feedback on. Like, I think I asked your oh. feedback before I made it. Like, what do you think oh, about? That must have been why I liked it so much. <laughs> yes, but it's this video I have that's called What's the Right Length for Down Dog? I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yet I made it because I know a lot of people wonder about this. And in my experience, a very common rule for down dog length is that the, quote, correct length for down dog is that you start in plank pose, then you keep your hands and feet exactly where they are, and then you send your hips back into down dog. And then where you land, that's where you stay. That's like your down dog. Alignment. I kind of like that rule. Not that I think it's a good rule. It just, it like makes sense. It's, mm -hmm. There are so many rules that don't make sense to me, but that <laughs> one it's like, oh, okay, well we're in plank. And then we yeah. move from plank to down dog. So like that's quite a bit. But the only way that it doesn't make sense is what if we start in bear, which I know yes. isn't a real pose per se, bear right. being hovering tabletop or tabletop. Yeah. And then you wanted to go from tabletop to down dog. Now that's not the same length. But that, but that's what hands and knee. Yeah. That's not the same length as plank pose bear right. and hands and knees. Right? right. It's shorter. So exactly. It could be that too. <laughs> Yeah. So my impression and what I actually said in that video is that I think the plank rule is actually a good starting point. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that's, I think it's, a, it's not bad. And I think it's a good, like, you know, general, general idea. Um, and where I think the instead instruction comes from or one motivating factor is that I think it's partly a reaction to what many people do when they come into down dog from plank, because that's such a common transition, plank and press back. As many people are in plank, they press back to down dog and then they may not even think about it but they naturally step their feet forward a little bit. It's mm -hmm. like a little step and then they shorten the stance. And that's very, I know I used to do that. I remember that being super common, like in the Ashtanga world. But not anymore. Yeah, I don't, I don't do that. No, that's right. The reason that pe uh, the reason I was doing it and the reason I think many people do it is because a shorter down dog is actually an easier down dog in many ways, not, not in all ways, but it means that you have less load on your upper body if you shorten the stance a little. It's subtle, but it's there. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it just makes it a little easier, a little less work. And I think that's my theory as to why many people do that consciously or unconsciously. More restful from the loading of the upper body standpoint. That's a really, that's a really great point. It can be more restful that way, unless someone's hamstrings are tight. <laughs> unless because, you're me. Yeah. Cause when you shorten down dog, then you actually make it a more bigger hamstring, hamstring stretch. So then it may be less restful as far as stretching goes. So many variables, right? Mm-hmm. But but anyway, I, I believe that like the start in plank and keep your hands and feet there and press back is partly a response to the constant shortening that people do, because there's just like a default idea like, well, it's going to be better for us, I guess, in terms of it's harder. So therefore, it's better if that's what, you, what you're thinking. It's better to keep a slightly longer length. That is my theory. It's an untested theory, but that's why I think, <laughs> that's why I think that cue came about. Um, but yeah, but like I said, I think it is a good starting point. I just don't think it's the right ending point in many cases. Right. And that they, that goes towards the some of the things that you were bringing up of, well, how, how much load are you interested in putting yes. on your shoulders? Yes. How much flexibility work are you trying to get from your hamstrings? How much flexibility work are you trying to get through the calves? Exactly. And it's not, it would be easy if there was one position that optimized all three of those things. That's but right. It's not, that's not the case. A shorter pose might work towards one thing and a longer pose might work towards another thing. So it's not, you can't just say this is the one alignment for that's all. Right. It's like, well, what's the goal? What's the biomechanical goal that you're after in this moment, actually, because that might not be the same all, every time yeah. you practice it today <laughs> or in the, today and in this moment. And then you can decide how long to make your down dog. 100% Travis. I think you put that so well. Yeah. It's like all about what's your goal and intention in the moment. Mm-hmm. And um, as a yoga teacher, you may have like a theme for the class. Like maybe, maybe you're trying to um, you increase shoulder strength or something. So you may, you may even want people not only to have like that plank length down dog, you might want them to start working with a longer down dog than that. Mm-hmm. You, and you did a really nice job explaining that in the video. I think the the easiest way to think about it is when you're in down dog, if you were to walk your hands closer to your feet, the mm-hmm. load will shift towards your lower body. Mm-hmm. And the way to look see that from an extreme standpoint is you could walk your hands from down dog to forward fold. And, and we know that in forward fold, our weight is mostly on our feet, right? So as you walk your hands in, it, the weight shifts towards the feet, your, your legs get more vertical. And then as you walk your hands out and out and out, the load gets more into the upper body. That's right. Which is why a longer down dog tends to be harder. But mm-hmm. what else does a longer down dog do? Like say at the ankle? That's, that's especially tricky for, for me. Um, yes. Well, I, I don't, I'm not particularly flexible in my hamstrings or my calves. So I, I, I take the the middle approach because when you walk your hands out and load the shoulders more, you also need to go into more dorsiflexion. That's right. Which puts a greater stretch on your calves. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you walk your hands in, it puts you, you more into hip flexion and it puts a greater stretch on your hamstrings. <laughs> so so from there's there's the way, to, okay, what are we trying to load? Are we wanting to load mm-hmm. the upper body? Down, like longer down dog. What are we trying to stretch? Trying to stretch the calves. Yeah. Let's press our heels down towards the floor in a longer down dog. Are we trying to stretch our hamstrings? We can shorten it a little bit. 
A hundred percent. So there are like all these different factors and variables that we can take into account. And I think that's why there really isn't one quote right link for down dog. But I still do just kind of as a general like default, I like starting a plank and pressing back, especially if you think of how many times we visit down dog in a typical mm-hmm. practice, it's like many, many times. And it's probably not most times we're in there that we're actually trying to focus on a specific thing. Yeah. So just, you know, if we have a specific theme that we're layering on, then maybe we start to tweak with those. Or yeah. if a student has pain, you know, like shoulder pain, maybe they want to, sh- to embody a shorter down dog temporarily because that will load the shoulders less. Maybe they'll experience that might be another reason that you might tweak your down dog. Yeah. And um, talking about the calves, actually, it um, made me think to ask you this question. This is super related, um, but a little bit different. Uh, in downward facing dog, are we supposed to have our heels on the floor? Because you were saying, like, if you wanted yeah. to stretch your calves, you could right. walk your hands forward. Right. But then I was like, well, what if someone just lifted their heels? You know, then they wouldn't really be. Right. That's the complicating factor is you have a certain amount of dorsiflexion. So yeah. if you're, if you're, insisting on keeping your heels pressed to the floor as you shorten or lengthen your down dog, then it does create more of a stretch through the ankle, through the calf. Yeah. But if you just let your heels come up, then it actually doesn't. <laughs> that's right. And, so if you do um, a long down dog and the heels lift, then you actually yeah. won't get the calf Yeah. Stretch. So that's a common question that we yes. get is do your, right. Do your heels need to stay on the ground? And I think a related one is do your knees need to stay straight? Yes, Travis, it's like, these are well, both related. If you look at the the pictures in the books, like heels tend to be on the ground and knees tend to be straight. So that's like the the quintessential embodiment of the pose. That's right. I guess mm-hmm. you could say. But there's no the yoga police aren't gonna arrest you if you no. move your knees a little bit and your heels pop off the ground a little bit. It's still a down dog. It's hundred um, percent. So so I think that both of those things are perfectly acceptable and in certain people's bodies either in this moment or forever they're just not going to get a perfect perfect knee extension and perfect dorsiflexion yeah. heels to the ground and that's okay it could be if, yes. if that's a goal then yeah. like on an individual basis it could be something that you work towards but uh it doesn't have to be and it, it can just be that your down dog has a little bit of knee bend and heels off the ground. And personally for me, that that's what it looks like because I find that that helps me one, be more comfortable, but two also like press back into it a little bit more and get like more thoracic extension by bending the knees. So it's like this compromise between all of the different things. Like I'm, if I keep my legs really straight, I end up being in like a down dog plank hybrid (laughs) Just, right, because it pushes like you forward. Is yeah. What you're saying. Yeah. If you straighten your knees because yeah. of your hamstring flexibility. Yeah. So I just, and I think many people probably can relate that it's a trade off. It's a trade. Yeah. Pick what's going to be best for you in the moment that's most comfortable to get feel like you're embodying the pose. The yes. Way that makes sense to you. Thank you for for mentioning that. That's such a good example. Yeah. Yeah, so flexibility is like a major player here. And when we are, quote, tighter, like through the backs of the legs, if we force the knees straight, that necessarily is then going to shift things like so that you're in less shoulder flexion, like your arms will be less overhead. You might round your spine a little bit. Right, right. So if you have a, a certain amount of hamstring length, 
if you take it away from the knees, then you will go into more hip extension, which is taking you out of down, like the, the high hips that we quote unquote, like in down dog. That's right. That's right. So bending the knees may be a helpful strategy for keeping that reaching back energy mm -hmm. that we often like there and for really yeah. being able to come into the full shoulder flexion, you know, like, so like you said, it's a trade-off separately from downward facing dog, or perhaps in your times in down dog, people could like people who would like to, um, would like to move toward the straight knees and the heels down. They could work on hamstring flexibility and ankle flexibility, like separately, mm -hmm. right? Like just mm -hmm. like take that on as a goal. Right. Um, which you could do a bit of in down dog, but I think there are other you know, movements and exercises for that um, that are more effective. Do you think that if you can have your heels on the ground and straighten your knees, down dog is a more restful pose? I said, really? You're asking me that because I, because I can do that in my body. So you just mean like from my personal experience? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think it depends on what you mean by restful, because if it's, if you mean mm, like right. uh, free from the discomfort of feeling a lot of stretch, you know, then yes. Yeah. That's the tricky thing because you could still have relatively weak shoulders and mm -hmm. your shoulders are, are burning. Yes. So it's like the, is the F is, is it what, you know, what's making it not restful for you? Is it the pressing through the shoulders? Personally, for me, that's not the case. You're strong. But it is like, body. yeah, but I feel a lot of effort stretching <laughs> through the hamstrings. Yes. And that's, that is effort as well. It's just yeah. more like discomfort effort, I guess. Yeah. Versus yeah. like, um, working your muscles discomfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just like not feeling like. At, totally at rest in that pose because right. um, it's a pretty in, intense position. So as we alluded to earlier, we mentioned this earlier, but there's a very common kind of phrase in the yoga world that like down dog is a resting pose. What I remember kind of coming up in the yoga world is teachers would say um, down dog might not feel like a resting pose to you today, but you're going to find that it will become as you like get more flexible or whatever. Like it might feel hard mm. for you now. And I remember it was really hard. Like, no, oh, so that 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 is has been true in your experience. In my experience, yes, but I know that for many other yeah. people, that's no, not true. Never gets easier for me. <laughs> exactly. So I do think it raises the question of like how helpful of a phrase is that to use? Like, because could it yeah. um, make people feel bad? Yeah, it's discouraging. It's discouraging. Oh, I'm yes. supposed to be resting here, and I'm exerting. struggling. Yeah, but I I can appreciate the notion that. It's, you know, you might aspire to, this might be a hard pose at first. And I know for yeah. some beginners, that's not even, it's not a pose that they can do. That's in right, which case, Travis. maybe they use a chair, or they elevate their hands, or we can maybe talk about modifications. Actually, maybe we, maybe we should talk about that. Do you want to, yeah. that's kind of on our, like um, yeah. how to make, how to progress and regress down dog. Yeah. This might be a good time to talk about that yeah. because it is, it can be such a struggle for people. Mm -hmm. And then for other people, they might feel like, oh, I don't feel anything here. So how could they maybe shift it so that it starts to be more challenging? Mm. You know, like, how could you tailor it a little bit? And I think this kind of ties into just understanding more about the anatomy and biomechanics of what are going on, what is going on. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think the fact that we've spent an hour explaining what's happening yeah. now, the modifications hopefully will make a lot of sense. Right. So let's say, Travis, you're in down dog and it's like a big struggle for you. Mm -hmm. um, what are some strategies for how you might 
um, regress or make it less challenging? What could you do? I personally like to do my down dog with yoga blocks under my hands. Yes. That's an excellent option. For a couple of reasons. It shifts some of the load back to the lower body. Like out Uh, of the upper body because your hands are higher. Yeah. Which isn't, yeah, isn't really for me, the reason I'm doing it for me, it's, I don't need as much hip flexion Mm -hmm. and hamstring. It lessens the intensity of the hamstring stretch. Um, Cause you're lifted up more. Yeah. And does that also, it also decreases the, uh, ankle the calf. I think it yeah. does. I think it does. Yeah. Double whammy. Yeah. The whole backside feel a little more useful. Yeah. But as you mentioned, if someone struggled in down dog because their arms felt tired or their shoulders felt weak, then elevating the hands up on blocks or mm-hmm. even higher right. on a chair seat or on yep. a wall, that's a common Mm-hmm. Uh, down dog variation is down dog hands on the wall. And I, I think that would be a really relevant option for people who were having pain. Yes. So we talked for 15 minutes about externally rotating the shoulder. Yeah. And sure, that's an option, but all, another option is just to lo- like, yeah, reduce the load on the shoulders. Maybe mm-hmm. it's not so much, well, this particular joint angle and position is provocative. It's just like, this is a lot for the person in this moment. And if you can offload them, put their hands on blocks, which yep. shifts some of the load back into the legs. Now their shoulders, maybe you've taken, maybe there was some threshold that was creating pain. And if mm-hmm. you can lower that threshold, then you can stay on the right side of that. That's a really good um, additional modification because yeah, uh, cueing people to externally rotate is just one of of many things, Mm -hmm. but elevating the hands. Another thing someone who might have pain in their shoulders could do is they could widen their hands Mm -hmm. or narrow, like just change, you know, change something about, Mm -hmm. um, about how the shoulders are working. So maybe widening the hands or narrowing the hands so that they're closer together could be a way, or, or like you said, um, they could externally rotate. They could also try internally rotating mm-hmm. and just see if that changes the pain that they're, because we know pain yeah. is multifactorial. It's so many things can be. Maybe they've been externally rotating forever and they, maybe they just don't have to think about that. Maybe they can internally rotate back to like a neutral rotation. Yes. By, by removing the cue that they've been trying to layer on top, maybe that helps. Mm-hmm. Just like the cha- it almost could just be novel. It could like change mm-hmm. the experience of what they're so, so used to. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are some good ideas for um, either regressing down dog or maybe modifying it temporarily for pain, like people mm-hmm. who have pain in the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. What about like the other side of things and just ramping up down dog and making it more challenging or progressing it? What mm-hmm. could you do? Well, you tell me. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not first, in a position that I need to make it any harder. One of the first things I think, well, I, I for sure think, and we've already talked about this, is just make your down dog longer. Right. So walk your hands forward a little or your feet, make it long. That alone is going to make it harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but aside from that, um, I think you could elevate your feet. That Yeah. I was, that, as soon as I turned the question back to you, I was like, yeah, that's the <laughs> When, and we do that. We do that. Uh, we have down dog push-ups in our programs and I think oh, yes. feet elevated down dog push-ups, whether it's on blocks or on a bench or a chair. Or on a bench. So the higher feet are, the more load you're putting into the upper body. Yep. 
And then um, if you did actual push-ups, which we don't normally do in down dog, but that's a great strength building variation. Yeah, and that would also be a way to make it harder. Instead of taking your five bre- breaths, do five down dog push-ups. And just so people know what that is, because they may not, it just means mm-hmm. that you would bend your elbows out to the sides and bring like your head toward the floor and then straighten mm-hmm. again. All while keeping your, your down dog shape. Exactly. That would be, and that's super, like if people haven't tried that before, they should, they should give that a try. It's very hard. You also, as a, as a progression in between that, so there's holding down dog, there's down dog pushups. You could just go back and forth between plank and down dog. Mm-hmm, I think that sure. might've been uh, an option that we offered people if uh, down dog pushups was too difficult. I think you're right, Travis. We're talking in our strength for yoga remote group training. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, everybody is used to doing down dog in yoga class. How can we make this harder? Well, we can yes. do pushups, but if down dog pushups are crazy in this moment, just going back and forth between plank and down dog could give you a strengthening stimulus. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you could do that with your feet on blocks to mm-hmm. make it even like a little more because mm-hmm. in yoga i think in yoga we do kind of frequently do that movement plank to down dog and sometimes we do it repeatedly yeah so it makes it harder if you no, do maybe a bunch not like in 12 a row. times in a row yeah. yeah exactly um but if that's not hard enough try feet on blocks and then do it and see how that is like mm-hmm. so there other ways you can make down dog more challenging are um well this is this isn't the best example because it's very common like lift a leg into yeah. down dog splits but mm-hmm. we tend to see that quite a bit. But another maybe more challenging way would be lift an arm in downward facing dog. Oh, damn. So you could lift it um, just straight up off the floor or you could take it back. I, I think we have some picture, photo shoot pictures of you doing that. Oh, which you're is pretty, right. Looks pretty cool. Yeah. So it's good for loading and it's good if you're doing a photo shoot. It's good for photos. Oh, yeah. yeah the down good. dog with a raised arm and a leg. That's so hard. But I think we have a picture of me doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you could do, you could lift an arm, keeping both feet down, or you could lift one leg and one arm, which is like the hardest of the hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but those definitely make down dog. Or lift two legs. Well. <laughs> and then, yeah, then you're in handstand. Or, or, or just practicing kickups, uh-huh. you know, not, not going all the way up, but doing like a little hop up into it and then coming back down. That's actually... Oh. My fir- my first inclination was a joke, but because it's actually handstand. But my my my, my uh, second inclination is like, oh, that's actually a series. You're totally right. So like, do down dog and just hop up both legs mm-hmm. and come down, like uh, donkey mm-hmm. kicks or whatever, whatever you might yeah. call that. That's a great. Yeah, that totally steps things up. And it's down, not really down so. dog anymore, but it's it's a progression on the loading. So those are all some ways. Oh, what were you going to say? Down dog push offs. Oh yeah. That's a great, that's in our strength for yoga. Novel transition from down dog to standing. That's such that a good and very you. rarely seen. Mm-hmm. So what that is, is it's great. You should try it if you've not tried it. It's down dog. And then what you do is you, um, you rapidly push off the floor through your arms so that you spring all the way back and up to standing. And you might uh, transition through like a halfway lift. Yes, you could. Because you you, it, rather than just like, well, let me hold that inverted V and in one fell swoop, you know, crazy upper body power to get back up. It's like, well, I can push back into sort of like a forward fold or halfway lift and then come up to standing. 
And what makes it more accessible, it's really hard to do from a typical down dog length, but if you shorten the down dog, like I'll come mm, into down dog and then yeah. I walk my hands toward my feet quite a yeah. bit. And then I, you like bend your elbows and then spring off. Or, or start on a couple of blocks to try it first. See like, oh, yeah. I can do this. I know totally. what this feels like. And it, Make it a little easier. Yeah. But that's a great down dog variation. That's playing with, like you said, um, power or like using your strength rapidly or quickly through the upper body. Mm-hmm. And just an interesting transition straight Absolutely. from down dog or a short down dog up into standing. Yeah, totally. A couple other modifications, and this would be uh, maybe somewhat particular cases, but uh, if you were experiencing wrist discomfort, you mm-hmm. could elevate the palm, or not the palm, The what would the... The wrist, yeah, the heel of the hand. The heel of the hand, yeah, on a yoga mat. Or not a yoga mat, a, a, a rolled up blanket. Like yeah. a, or a towel to, or something. To create a wedge. Or yes. a towel, yeah. So just you don't need to be in as much extension. And that's probably not going to be an issue for most people because it's just you're not in full extension. That might come more into play in plank. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could do the same thing at the other side. So yoga blanket under the heels to ground... So you, yeah. you might not be able to get your heels all the way down to the ground, but if you want to feel that sensation, then having a yoga blanket underneath your heels can allow a more even distribution of pressure under the foot. That's a great idea. And it also kind of gives you something to push into if you want mm-hmm. to actively like push your heels down and that may, yeah. that may help with um, like as a calf flexibility exercise as well, just like finding that active. You roll the blanket up six times this week and four times next week maybe <laughs> Ooh, you can I like work that I like that a lot yeah those are great um, those are great variations yeah just other other ways you can approach downward facing dog uh, why don't we just take a quick look at maybe a few other kind of more miscellaneous questions that we received about sure. down dog one of them that we got from a few people was what about down dog and pregnancy mm. And I thought this was a really good question. Um, like, is down dog okay to practice when you're pregnant? And I, I don't really know. I'm not a, a prenatal yoga teacher, but I actually asked our friend, Lauren Anderson, who is... Shout uh, out Lauren Anderson. Exactly. She's great. She actually has some prenatal classes on my website. And she wrote a great article about like top four yoga myths about pregnancy that's on my blog. Which so we'll we link can, in the show notes. Yes, we will link in the show notes. And Lauren's amazing. She has a really great evidence-based prenatal yoga program, or pre- and postnatal yoga teacher training program, which is great because in the sea of yoga, as we know, there's a lot of misinformation, and there's maybe more when it comes to pregnancy. There's, there's a lot of misinformation about pregnancy. Well, exactly. in, in general, <laughs> specifically, I mean, about exercise, not even just in the yoga context. Right. You're totally right. Like in general about pregnancy, but especially like, yeah, pregnancy and exercise. Yeah. Like, oh, it's not safe to exercise when you're pregnant in general. Like people think that. They think they can't do it. And it's actually super important and beneficial to exercise all the way through. Of course, unless someone has certain mm-hmm. contraindications mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we are not the medical Ask professionals to advise. Yeah. <laughs> we can, you know, we can make some general recommendations, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, and so with that caveat that like anybody wondering should truly ask their medical provider, but what, here's what Lauren told us about downward facing dog was that it's, it's, um, it's, it's as with everything, it's an, it depends case, 
But in general, if down dog is a pose that you've been practicing before you were pregnant, so your body is like already familiar and conditioned with it. And if you don't have certain contraindications like high blood pressure, you get lightheaded or dizzy easily, things like that, then it's considered to be a safe pose, like not one that needs to be avoided. Um, but of course, people should check with their, with their doctor. But that's what Lauren said. Um, and I thought that that was really helpful. She said, I'm just going to read a quick thing. She said, um, usually if someone shouldn't do uh, a pose, it's not because of the pose itself. It's because the, their provider is worried that they'll get lightheaded and faint or fall or something like that. But it's, so it's not necessarily like down dog is bad for pregnancy, but just maybe there are concerns about lightheadedness or even nausea if those are things that are going on for you mm -hmm. during your pregnancy. Yeah. So that down dog, and I think maybe the same would apply to handstand, which is just a, you know, taking down oh, yes. dog to the nth degree of just, totally. there's probably a lot of concern surrounding that. And all inversions. Yeah. And it's more like, well, if you've been doing it, mm -hmm. then you can continue to do it until it doesn't feel comfortable anymore, potentially, unless you know, there's the risk yeah, of lightheadedness, falling. Yes. And so on. Yeah. To, always check with your doctor. A hundred percent. But just to give an example of that, back in my Ashtanga days, um, our teachers were a married couple and um, the wife became pregnant with twins at, uh, at one point. And she practiced Ashtanga forever and also had been a dancer before that. So she was just really well adapted to all of those movements throughout so much of her life. So through her whole pregnancy, she did all of her super gnarly, intense Ashtanga, which included things like um, handstand and then dropping down into wheel pose. So like handstand, mm. bring your feet to the floor and then reversing that like feet, feet back up, like spring them up and then down. So just, you know, she was just really adapted for that. Definitely not recommending that for everybody at all mm -hmm. but just like mm -hmm. as an example like what you were what your body had it's already amazing. been doing can often be okay to you don't need to suddenly be like i have to stop yeah if you haven't you haven't dropped dropped into wheel from handstand and gone back before you're pregnant now's not the time to start yes 100 100 percent. uh so those that was one of the questions maybe we can do like one more question and uh i think a lot of these other questions we've actually kind of covered already mm -hmm. um i do okay i have a question to throw out at you travis i'm curious uh -oh. what you think about this i've heard this claimed and i'm just wondering what you think this has to do with when your intention is to stretch your hamstrings mm -hmm. so we've talked about sometimes like if if your hamstrings are tight and down dog feels uncomfortable, you could like bend your knees or whatever. So, mm -hmm. but what if actually you want to use down dog to increase flexibility, like to stretch mm -hmm. the hamstrings? So mm -hmm. something nice that um, people say is you, uh, what you have to do, you will not be stretching your hamstrings in yoga unless you are lifting your tailbone or mm -hmm. another way of saying that is anteriorly tilting your pelvis. Mm -hmm. So um, it's like, if you want it to be an effective hamstring stretch, you have to find that anterior pelvic tilt or the tailbone lift in order to stretch the hamstrings. Right. Um, what do you What do you think about that? I think there's a grain of truth to that, mm -hmm. but not a full truth, just a half truth. So, like, if you <laughs> if you go to do, is it called a runner's stretch, where you put your one leg up on a bench or chair or something? Oh yeah. Um, you can feel this right away. So. 
put your leg up and then you play with anteriorly or posteriorly tilting your pelvis. Mm -hmm. And because of where the hamstring attaches on your pelvis, when you anteriorly tilt, it creates more length through the hamstring. So the question is how much, and if you're in down dog and you do that or don't do that, does it turn off the stretch? Um, and I guess the, it depends on the person per, perhaps. So maybe they get into down dogs like me and it doesn't matter what they're doing with their pelvis. They feel a stretch right away. Right. Uh, to the point where you have to bend your knee. Otherwise it's too intense, but maybe the person doesn't feel anything with their knee bent. They don't, they, they straighten the knee. They still don't feel anything. Yeah. Maybe adding that volitional anterior tilt will get to them point them to the point of feeling that stretch. So if they are particularly flexible, then that's certainly an option and a way to intensify it. But yeah. I don't think you are not stretching. I mean, it, you're lengthening it no matter what. This pelvic tilt is a few degrees that's putting a few more whatever's whatever units of lengthening on the hamstring. So I don't I don't think you're not stretching it if you're in posterior tilt and then suddenly you are stretching it. I think you might be you would be stretching it more in an anterior tilt and maybe for an individual they need that in order to feel it. That's such a great answer. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's pretty much what I had been thinking as well. I also was just kind of in my mind adding in there that like the hamstrings, they, they cross the hip. And so therefore, you know, pelvic position matters, but also yeah. they cross the knee. And so the position of the knee matters as well. So right. it's kind of like, well, what, what else are you doing with your knees? Mm-hmm. And um, what if your knees, you know, if they were super bent, then maybe you're not stretching them from that end. So lifting the tailbone could add a stretch. Right. So if you, well, what happens if you anteriorly tilt and then your knees bend? Exactly. You've made no, you've made no change. And that, that could exactly. happen. Right? It like, totally oh, can need, happen. You know, you're told, oh, I need to make sure I'm anteriorly tilting. And then you don't realize that you're stealing the length by Bending going into knees. the same degree of knee flexion to counteract that. So if you're, yeah, if you're keeping your knees straight and you're anteriorly tilting, then sure, you're getting more of a hamstring stretch. Yeah, then you might get the maximal. But um, I think only for very flexible people would they really need to really be maximizing yeah. it on both ends. What do you do you think about it? That's a great question. I, I don't think about it. I don't, I just think of that's your homework. Piking my hips back. Yeah. You mean, you mean well, like maybe... in my own practice, do I think about lifting the tailbone? Yeah. Down dog? Yeah. yeah. No, I don't. Because to me, that just, it's kind of like that. It's like externally rotating the shoulders. It's like, I mean, I might for a particular reason in a particular moment, mm-hmm. I want to do some pelvic tilts here, but as a default rule, I don't go into down dog and then lift my tailbone. Just gotcha. like I don't go into down dog and then externally rotate my shoulders. It's like, I'll just mm. kind of let the body be nice, but it depends yeah, on the rules. Yeah, right. You already have very, na- uh, not naturally, you've worked on and have developed very n- flexible hamstrings. Right. <laughs> Especially through our strength for yoga practice, which has targeted my hamstrings so well. Right. So true. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of, I think you gave a perfect answer. In my mind, it's like, I think that the tailbone can certainly be involved, you know, and pelvic tilt and down dog can be involved in a hamstring stretch, but I think it's a lot more nuanced and it depends mm-hmm. than just saying, you're not going to stretch your hamstrings unless you're in an anterior pelvic tilt. Yeah. Yeah. And I like what you said. You can treat that as an exploration. Yeah. But just like with the shoulder. That's right. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't need to be, you don't need to think you're not like stretching your hamstrings if you're not in an anterior pelvic tilt. If it you just feel depends. your hamstring stretching, then you're stretching your hamstrings. 
100%. So um, with that, Travis, do you think we've kind of covered this whole hamstring, uh, this whole hamstrings, this whole down dog topic uh, pretty well and thoroughly? If last thing, and then we'll go. If you were queuing down dog in a class, what so we've also, we've talked at length about, you know, don't, you don't need to say these things. What would you say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, what would you cue that? And you're right. These were, we did get this as a couple questions. Like, how would you cue down dog? Um, it just me personally, I try to keep it simple as I try to with most things. And, and then maybe I add on some exploration or some focus I'm focusing on in the class. That's very contextual. But as far as just teaching out of the box down dog, I would probably do it pretty simply. Um, maybe start on hands and knees, walk your hands forward a little bit, because, you know, if you go straight to down dog from there, you'll be in kind of a narrow down dog. So walk your hands forward a little bit and then lift your hips up and back. And I might say lift your hips up and back toward the place where the ceiling and the wall meet. It's a little bit of a wordy <laughs> wordy cue, but like that, I think that visualization or that like external target to reach your hips toward can be helpful for just kind of self-organizing the pose. Mm -hmm often push the floor away. I like that. Push the floor away through the arms kind of helps light up what's going on through the upper body. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of it. And then I may, you know, observational things like, what do you feel through the hand? What, what happens if you do this? You know? Yeah. What about like lengthen through the spine? Or is that not even on that's the a great, horizon? So great. Yes. I do sometimes teach that. Sometimes I'll say like, um, feel your whole spine from the crown of your head to your tailbone. Or from your tailbone to the core, like see if you can embody that as like one unit and just that alone, like feeling from tailbone to crown of head or lengthening from crown, uh, tailbone to crown of head can kind of light up some 360 degree core engagement, like all the way around. Mm -hmm. Even though down dog's not a core exercise. Yeah. <laughs> but, but certainly, yeah, you can, you can bring some awareness. That's right. Just like light up a little more engagement, but cool, yeah, thanks. I tend to keep the shapes pretty simple and no, then I'm layer on. Cure. Yeah, exactly. But that's just me. Everyone might have their own approach. Um, Adho yeah. Mukha Shvanasana. You said it so well. Thank you. Downward facing dog. Um, thank you so much for talking about this surprisingly complex yoga asana that we have in our hands. Well, thank you, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at downward facing dog. Remember that you can support our work with this podcast by subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a rating or a review. You can also stay in the loop with all of our offerings by signing up for my email newsletter at jennyrawlings.com newsletter, and the link is in the show notes. Lastly, remember to use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in Travis's and my Strength for Yoga remote group training program or 30% off your first month in any of the other memberships on my website. You can learn more and sign up at jennyrawlings.com and the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon.